Our scripture today is from the book of Acts. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. And now we ask, Almighty God, that by the power of your Spirit, that we would hear your word and be transformed in your likeness. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In April of 1959, John F. Kennedy, who was then still a senator, explained in a speech that when written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger, and the other one represents opportunity. Now, he was speaking about the need for educational equity against the backdrop of Cold War anxieties against the ascendancy of the Soviet Union, but his crisis equals danger plus opportunity trope has been invoked by politicians of all shades to describe everything from the tenuous position of missionary work in China to instability in the Middle East to the perils of global warming and the threat of COVID-19 has been used by everyone from Al Gore to Condoleezza Rice and everyone in between. Now, Kennedy's translation of the word wagey might be incorrect. Uh, turns out the idea of opportunity isn't really in there. But his instinct is absolutely correct. It's a great way of thinking about that incipient moment, that time at the very beginning of, of a crisis when things could go either way. And I think in a lot of ways, it's a very fitting metaphor for where we find ourselves as followers of Jesus in the year 2022. Even before the pandemic hit, the church in America was in crisis. After more than a millennia of growth, the church in the West had always experienced relative uh, security, growth, stability, affluence, and now we find ourselves in a very strange place. The last hundred years have seen rapid change. Uh, Europe, which was once considered kind of the nest of Christendom, the, the center of, of uh, evangelization of the world, of art, of music, of poetry, and drama that, that contained Christian culture, what well, has shifted over two world wars to become the most secular continent on earth. Now, for the longest time, America seemed to kind of buck the trend, Right? Uh, religious involvement in the United States actually grew after World War II rather than shrank. And that was too true up until the 1990s. And since then, we've seen hostility toward Orthodox Christian views on the rise. And if you think hostility is an overstatement, I invite you to ask 
students at Decatur High what it's like being a follower of Jesus there. Sociologist Peter Berger has described those who hold to Orthodox Christian views as members of a cognitive minority. He writes this, Whatever the situation might have been in the past, today the supernatural as a meaningful reality is absent or remote from the horizons of everyday life of large numbers, very probably of the majority of people in modern societies, who seem to manage to get along without it quite well. This means that those to whom the supernatural is still, or again, a meaningful reality, find themselves in the status of a minority, more precisely, a cognitive minority. By cognitive minority, I mean a group of people whose view of the world differs significantly from the one generally taken for granted in their society. Well, the thing about being a cognitive minority means that it is a step before becoming an actual numeric minority. And all the data shows that in the coming years, we are headed for a bit of a demographic cliff, absent a move of the Spirit in one way or another. There's going to be an unprecedented number of people, particularly young Americans, leaving the church in droves. All this is to say, as a way of like saying, welcome to church in the morning, that even before the pandemic, the American church was in crisis in the last two years have only intensified the problem. In some ways, I feel like all it's done is that it got us to 20, 30, eight years earlier. Public health crisis destabilized many of our congregations. A social crisis cracked open by the murder of George Floyd has fractured congregations over views of justice and responsibility for years of oppression and injustice directed toward black men and women in this country. A leadership crisis predicated uh, by our suffocating political polarization has ripped communities, has ripped congregations, has ripped even families apart. I know from a number of you how difficult these last couple of years have been on your extended families. And all of this has left us with kind of a feeling of disorientation. It's like the the road that we were walking along for so long has just absolutely crumbled beneath our feet. And so we shift our footing looking for anything that is going to be stable to hold us. And we wonder, well, where do we go from here? Well, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that perhaps in the crisis, God is bringing about an opportunity. In the timing and the sovereignty of God, it's through interruptions, it's through crisis that something new takes place that would not have been possible were it not for the conditions that brought us to the crisis in the first place. And this is the story of the church. This is the story of Acts chapter 8. The church in Acts chapter 8 is in crisis. It's watching the ground beneath its feet fall apart and scatter in the wind. And yet, in the mercy and in the providence of God, new life begins to well up where places where the ground was broken. Out of crucifixion, there comes a resurrection. 
Verses 1 through 3 describe the crisis. Verses 4 through 6 describe the opportunity. First, let's dive into the crisis and a little bit of background on this. Up until this point, the church has been based in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus gave his disciples a calling and an identity. He tells them to go out into the world and bring the message of the gospel to all people, to all tribes. The, The great commission that we read last week, go and make disciples of all nations. And the word there for nations is the word ta-ethne, from which we get the word ethnicity, or or like our ministry partner in Clarkston, is is this invitation for the disciples to go and bring the liberating message of Jesus to all people, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all cultures. And Jesus was just as clear when he spoke to his disciples uh, before the ascension. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. In other words, he is telling his disciples to go into every corner of the globe and bring this message of liberation, this message of hope, the story of the kingdom that is breaking into the world. And yet, in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, We have a story of a church that has not moved outside of Jerusalem. Church that has stayed put. Now it's growing there, it's thriving. This ministry of compassion takes off, people are being healed, the church is getting organized, it's training up leaders. Things are starting to look good for the church in Jerusalem. And with so much going on there, the thought is, well, how are we going to have time to go out there? But then Acts 8.1 sounds this ominous note. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all but the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The church gets busted up. The disciples are scattered. Many are put in prison. Others are running, fleeing for their lives. Stephen, a deacon in the church, my namesake, gives witness to faith through his death. It's actually not true. He was not my namesake. I was named after my dad's cousin who I'd never met. I found this out by getting a wedding announcement from Stephen Michael Good and his wife inviting me to the marriage of their son. I was very, very confused as a college student. So I asked my dad about it. He said, yeah, I just like the name. Moving on. Stephen's martyred. Looks like everything is going to be lost. And I just want to pause here for a second. You know, the Bible is this this ancient book. It doesn't always communicate things on the emotional register that we are accustomed to in modern society. Uh, But verse 2 says a lot. Godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. It's a terribly profound loss in this you know, fledgling Christian movement. The church is facing this existential threat. A leader is killed. Men and women are being rounded up. Doors are shuttering. Hope is starting to flicker. I mean, can you imagine the the pain, the, the fear, the anxiety that could well up in a moment like that? And although the story has a happier ending, we need to avoid the tendency, I think, to just skip over to the good part and take a minute... And just note 
this, this moment of pause as they grieve the pain of sorrow and loss. As I was reading that this week, uh, you know, it occurred to me that I know eight pastors in Atlanta, meaning I know them well enough to where we've had a meal together, we've had, you know, multiple conversations or a beer together. And within the last year, four of the eight that I know in Atlanta have for one reason or another resigned from their ministries or had to shut the doors of their churches. It's been an unbelievably challenging season for so many. And it's important to simply note and call it out and name the loss and grieve the sorrow When people experience something traumatic, we have this tendency in our culture to just go right over that, to stuff it all down, to to not allow it to, you know, kind of come up and affect our lives. And whatever happens when we do that, when we just stuff it down, it, it starts to build up more and more power over us. You have to grieve it. You have to name the dark. You have to allow God to bring light into that place of dark. And so I don't know what y'all have been through. I know what some of you have been through. But it is impossible to, to be in a place of health without talking about the grief, without talking about the losses. Some of you were, were raised in families where that was the norm. You just stuff it aside. You know the harm that comes from that. But we, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be truth tellers. We are called to speak truth in our pain, in our grief. We are invited to ask God to come in, allow him to speak his grace over us, that he might do something new. So I want to just ask you, what is it that you have to name and and grieve? What loss do you need to hold up to God and allow him to bring grace into that? Well, that is the crisis. What about the opportunity? Well, the challenge that nearly every Christian community uh, faces are severe. It's certainly no different for this early one. They're enormous, and it would be easy for this church to think, with, with all of this persecution and scattering going on, that this would be the end of the church. But what happens? The crisis leads to an opportunity. Instead of killing the church, it grows in some really remarkable ways. And this is a pattern we see over and over again in the book of Acts. Saul persecutes the church, but then he gets converted and becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. He and Barnabas want to go into Asia, but the way is blocked, and so they evangelize all of Macedonia. They get imprisoned, they get shipwrecked, and Paul preaches to the the prison guards and to the people he is shipwrecked with. He takes crises And allows God to use them as an opportunity for the good of others. Well, in verse 4, the church begins to fan out in all of these multiple directions. In verse 5, they cross over these ethnic and social boundaries. They go into Samaria. And if you know anything about, you know, the, the, the world of the Bible, you have to remember that the Samaritans were the ones that the Jews hated the most. For the people of Israel, they were the most basic form of othering that you could get to. They did not read scripture right. They did not, you know, they they tended to mix in their religion with the religions of the other cultures around them so that they had this very weird flavor to them. They didn't worship God in any of the right places. And one of these leaders of the Jerusalem church named Philip finds himself in the very last place he wants to go. He finds himself in Samaria. 
And it's there that something happens in his heart. Somehow, all the animosity, all of the the vitriol, all of the the othering that he had done against these people began to erode. And it's there he starts preaching about Jesus. And the Samaritans, they start confessing Jesus as Lord. They start getting baptized. And maybe the more remarkable point of this story is not the conversion of the Samaritans, but it is the conversion of Philip. What God does in his heart changes it toward a people that he previously would not have had anything to do with. And the second thing that happens is that these other disciples, they go out and they begin to preach. And in, the, and in, in the preaching, uh, whenever the Bible talks about that, it doesn't mean, you know, like what I'm doing right now. It means more like they, they start dialoguing. They start telling people, others, the, the story about what God has done in Jesus. And it's accompanied by these miraculous signs and What's important to note about that is not that they just didn't talk about Jesus. They actually backed it up with some doing. They they showed their care for the poor. They they loved people. They provided for the needy. They they prayed for. They healed the sick. And so people paid attention. And when they saw this crowd of Jesus followers that backed up their words with their actions, they started to get curious about it. The church... In this moment of crisis, it became an opportunity to cross boundaries, to proclaim the gospel, to back the gospel up with action. And what is the result? There was great joy in the city. Here's the thing. Luke, who wrote Acts, does not say there was great joy in the church. He does not say there was great joy among the Jesus crowd. No, he says there was great joy in the city. There was this turn outward in the church. God took them into a new place. And I wonder if when it looks like the church is over, it is simply a a moment where God is doing something new. And I wonder if God is doing something new in our cultural moments. What does it mean to be church? Have you ever really sat with that question? And don't get me wrong, I'm not an anti-institutionalist by any stretch. I mean, I get paid to preach and teach and write community guides and have great conversations with you, visit you, um, talk about your hopes, your pain, your kids, talk about Jesus in the midst of all of it. And I love what I get to do. I love doing what I'm doing here in this room with you, with a great band, with, with this great building, with these cool lights, you know, all that stuff. This brick and mortar space where we can gather, where we can look at each other face to face. But all that stuff, the, the buildings, the bricks, the lights, all that stuff can get at you a bit and it gets you a little bit distracted about what the church actually is sometimes. And part of the story of the church in Acts is that God took this community that was inwardly focused and moved them to be outwardly focused on mission for the sake of others. So what if the church is not a place to go? It is a people who are sent to go. It's not a place where a small number of religious professionals provide you goods and services to consume. It's a place where God wants to interrupt things. Turn a community of people into those who contribute to the flourishing, to the joy of the city. You know, all throughout the Bible, 
God does not ever call the world to come to church. But all throughout the Bible, God calls the church to go into the world. And on the way, he restores our identity as a people who practice the way of Jesus so that we can see the renewal of all things. We are reminded to bear faithful witness to the good news in Jesus, to come along the poor, the oppressed, that they might find a liberating word of hope in Jesus, to find those who are turned inside out with grief or exhaustion or, or in pain and rage at the ways that they have been hurt, the ways that they have been judged by the world and offer the grace of a God who took that pain onto himself in the cross so that they no longer have to bear the shame. And of course, in this moment, we get to remember that the point of all this, or the outcome of all this, is that there is great joy in the city. I've been around the church long enough to know that pastors often forget that, myself included. We get seduced into the trap of defining success by how many people are here, by how we're doing with the budget, by how big the building gets. And the thing is, you can be doing great at all of that while the city languishes around you. You can fill a room like this one and not fulfill the mission that Jesus has given you. But we are called to be a welcome sign of the future that God intends. We are like a a preview of coming attractions at the movie theater. The new trailer for Black Panther dropped. I mean... I'm pretty riled up about that. I'm excited. And that's what, a good, that's what a preview should do, right? It should make you curious and should make you excited about what the thing is that's coming. And that's who we are. We are a preview of the kingdom of God. A community who is shaped by the way things will look in the city of God at the end of all things. And so our calling is not to measure things by how we are doing, but by how the city around us is flourishing. Jeremiah's words to a community in exile are God's words to us. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So maybe we need to define success a little bit differently. If we are to be a flourishing community, then we will see our city flourish as well. And I'm not going to lie, that is getting harder and harder to do. Suspicion, dissatisfaction, anti-institutionalism, polarization, all are on the rise. I, I read an article this week by researchers Nathan Calmo and Liliana Mason. They found that some 20% of Democrats and 16% of Republicans believe that the country would be better off if large numbers of the opposite party just died. The essence of love, I'm pretty sure, is to will good for others, not their destruction. So all that is to say, we are certainly in a place where we are in a a bit of a crisis in our culture and a bit of a crisis in our church, but what is the opportunity? And perhaps this is meant to be simply more than a defining moment for the church. And what if in this moment, God flipped it around from a moment of anxiety to a moment of great possibility? How could this cultural moment catalyze the best impulses of the Spirit within us? 
Well, to do that, I think it will take something similar to what the ancient church had in their moment. For the last few years, on and off, I've been working my way through a book called City of God by St. Augustine. Uh, it was written in the 4th century after the fall of Rome. I do not recommend it to anyone. It's, it's tough sledding. But when he wrote it, the Roman Empire had been on the rise for a thousand years. I mean, all anyone knew was stability within the empire. And it was at this moment where it was beginning to crumble and fracture and fall apart. And in that moment, the lines were clearer than ever between what the New Testament calls the church and the world, what Augustine called the city of God and the city of man. And in the city of God, really, it is a dream of the future church. And from it and other writings like it, this vision of the church began to kind of bubble up in the, the wake of the fall of the empire to begin to form where followers of Jesus would band together as a new family, as these little islands of sanity in an ocean of chaos. A people of love and joy and peace in a culture of anxiety and fear and tribalism. And I think the future of the church is going to require us to be different. It's going to require us to order our lives differently in order to be a hopeful sign for what God desires that brings joy into our city. And one of the ways that the church has ordered itself differently throughout the millennia is through what the ancients called a way of life and then later a rule of life. And if that phrase is new to you, please note I said rule of life, not rules, plural, of life. It's not a set of rules. It's an invitation. And it comes from the Latin word regula, from which we get the word regular. Uh, at its most basic, it was a straight piece of wood. It was something used to measure or to make something kind of the standard. The old image is of a trellis in a vineyard, the thing that you would use to lift the vines off the ground so that the fruit can produce more and the wine can be more abundant. Think of John 15, Jesus' great teaching where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, early disciples of Jesus, they took this teaching quite seriously. And they thought, how can we build a structure for our lives that we can remain connected so that we can bear the best fruit? We need a life structure to remain fruitful. And so a rule of life is simply this. It's a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to abide, to, to be with Jesus, to be transformed into his likeness, to carry that likeness out into the world, to live in alignment with the kingdom of God. Or a simpler version, as Andy Crouch put it, is a set of practice to guard our habits and guide our lives. But it's an answer to that question about how do we follow Jesus together in this time and in this place. And you need to know this isn't a new idea. Before the church grew, before it was, you know, the majority religion in the empire, while it was still the, the minority within Rome, before it had a common creed, before it had a common canon of scriptures, it had a common way of doing life together. 
And since this is a, a vision series, that means this is all invitation. And it's going to take years for us to kind of dive into this, but just drip it through one practice at a time like we've been doing. Because it takes all of us listening to the Spirit together. But the question that we're going to go over for the next several weeks is, what is the posture and what are the practices that bind us together as a hopeful community that can bear fruit in the soil of a post-Christian culture? And so here's the plan. We have this big, massive community guide that we have put together to go through over the next seven weeks. I'd say that, I'd probably just like, you're like, massive? Uh, I don't know about that. Sorry, it's, it's good, too. It's massive, but it's also good. Um, all right, I'm not, a, this is why I didn't go into sales, people, right, right here. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to explore some of the kind of unique challenges that we face into our culture and what are the practices that will shape us by the Holy Spirit to be people who practice the way of Jesus within our, within our culture. What is, what is going to shape our posture out in the world? And what we've arrived at through a year-long visioning process with our staff, with our session, is that we long to become a community of grace in a culture of judgment. Through the practices of scripture study and meditation, we allow the story of God's grace in Jesus to wash over us, to be the ground on which we stand, the primary reality through which we navigate the world. A community of rest and a culture of exhaustion through practices of Sabbath and slowing down, taking time to stop, rest, delight, and worship. A community of engagement and a culture of distraction through practices of silence and solitude, becoming present to God in prayer and stillness. A community of contribution in a culture of consumption through practices of generosity and service, stewarding the unique gifts that God has given to each of us as a way of giving ourselves away for the sake of others and becoming a community of reconciliation in a culture of division through the pursuit of justice and the practice of hospitality. And all of this is a way of being intentional about our future as a community, about what it looks like to be shaped by the Spirit to live in this unique time, in this unique place with the unique challenges we face in our culture. How do we become people of the future in the present? And I need to say again that none of these, you know, are practices that we do to earn our salvation. None of them are going to buy you a ticket away from the bad place. That's not what this is about. It's an invitation to take up an ordered life with Jesus. But it does require a radical recommitment to Jesus as Lord to allow him to kindle the redemptive passion in us so that we seek the joy of the city in which we live. And if you were to ask me what the future of the church looks like, I think it's simply coming back to our first love, radical commitment to Jesus as the way. I love how Eugene Peterson glosses over this Famous statement of Jesus in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He writes, the Jesus way, wedded to the Jesus truth, brings about the Jesus life. We can't proclaim the truth, the Jesus truth, but then do it any old way we like. Nor can we follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. 
And so over the next few weeks, we're going to invite you to journey together, to pray together in community, to talk about the Jesus truth, to practice the Jesus way so that we can experience the Jesus life. May we receive the gift of this crisis that our vision, our metrics of success won't be tied to how well our tribe is doing, but tied to the joy and the flourishing of the city that our neighbors would taste and see and experience in us the goodness of community and the goodness that Jesus brings. The story in Acts begins with sorrow, but it ends with joy. There is joy out of sorrow. There is a way when there is no way. This is what God does. The crucifixion is the greatest crisis. But out of it comes reconciliation, the restoration of creation. How much more will God bring that out of this crisis? But here's the thing. It always involves the turn away from ourselves and the turn toward others, away from our tribe and toward the city. Another way of saying that is that joy comes as we practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And so, friends, as we come to this table, we come as a community that is nourished by the Spirit, that somehow, through a mystery, God is present right now with us in this meal as we receive. And so, friends, as we come, let us pray.